listening to KBUT Community Radio for the Gunnison Valley. Thank you so much for tuning in to this very special coverage. We have a live question and answer session coming to you from Gunnison at the Ice Lab on the Western Colorado University campus. Uh, my name is Christopher Biddle. I am news director for KBUT. I am joined uh, around in this panel with uh, Jody Jody Leonard, who is the uh, viral infection nurse at Gunnison Valley Health. Uh, Jason Hogan, who is an emergency uh, emergency medicine physician and uh joni reynolds who is director of of the county health and human services and chris o'rourke editor of the gunnison country times um first of all thank you to all for being here and thank you all for the work that you've done uh in this past week past several days um we know that we've seen lots of uh tired eyes and um a lot of community coming together a lot of action a, a lot of swift movement uh to address this issue um, so I just I wanted to start off by asking Joni to uh, describe to us the public health order that came out today, uh, new public health order, new information for all citizens in the Gunnison Valley, uh, as well as um, there's a 6 p.m. update brought to you regularly by the incident command team. And uh, the, we just got that 6 p.m. update out. So where are we at um, as of right now, Joni Reynolds? Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you inviting all of us here and allowing us an opportunity to talk about the situation and where we're at with coronavirus here in Gunnison County. We actually, um, our case counts are probably not indicative of all of the disease that's occurring in the community, but we are tracking on those case counts. Unfortunately, we have a significant delay from the time of testing until we're getting the results back. Um, and that's really an issue that's out of our hands. It's really at the lab where they're testing. But today we have 10 positive tests and five negative tests in our county. And we have more than 40 tests that are pending. So we're still waiting for a lot of results. We actually just launched today a Google Doc that um, is a form that be can be completed online that really allows individuals to tell us about what's happening from their perspective, it captures information about the individual, about their symptoms, and where they are in the communities throughout um, Gunnison County. We think that form will help give us a better picture of some of what is happening around in the communities. And am I right in, in uh, thinking that that's that you're switching from that from the hotline that you had set up to asking folks to be filling out that form? We are asking folks to fill out the form. The hotline will still remain open. But we're trying to, again, allow folks to be able to provide that information for us so that we can get a picture um, throughout the county. And we still want to be available to answer questions. The hotline we're really trying to use for folks to call in that have symptoms, that have concerns about their symptoms, so that they can get direction and guidance about what they need to do for their symptoms. If folks have symptoms and they feel okay and they're treating themselves at home without any concerns, they can fill out the form and remain at home, um, stay in isolation so that they don't um, inadvertently affect someone else. We just want to capture all of that information, the calls that come in, in addition to the ones that may not call but may fill out the form online. We actually just um, today launched a new email address, too, so that folks could actually email um, rather than calling the hotline, and that's call center at gunnisoncounty.org. So they can um, email call center at gunnisoncounty.org, or they can call the call center at 641-7660, or they can go to our gunnisoncounty.org 
slash COVID-19, and that's where the form is located, the link to the form to complete with their symptoms. And uh, as you say that, it reminds me that I need to let folks know that they can call in if they've got questions during this next hour or hour and a half or so that we're going to be um, answering questions for the community. The number to call is 720-251-4658, or you can email news at kbut.org. We also have people uh, monitoring the Facebook event page for this event. Um, just to find KBUT's Facebook, and then we have an event set up for tonight, and you can post your questions there. So, Joni, can you just uh, clarify the public health order that came out today, uh, what that means for citizens? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I continue to evaluate the need for um, public health orders that are really focused on protecting the community, protecting those that are the most vulnerable in our community, but importantly, protecting our healthcare system from a surge of illness and individuals that are requiring acute or critical care arriving at the same time at our hospital. And I know Dr. Hogan and others can share more about our concerns about protecting that healthcare system. So today's orders really advance the protections when it comes to protecting our community from additional spread. There's a couple points of clarification in the order. One is that I included home child care centers or home child care in the order. Previously, I had referenced closure of all child cares, um, but didn't mention homes. And so I wanted to clarify that point. It um, goes uh, further to um, the order directs all visitors to return home immediately. So visitors are required to leave our county and return to their primary residence. It also encourages non-resident homeowners to leave and return to their primary residence. One of the things I'm trying to do is really to deflate the numbers in our community so that we're really at more of our year-round population that will help to insulate our healthcare system again with limited capacity. If we're really surged and we have a lot of visitors in our community that get ill, that will also negatively impact our healthcare system. Um, <clears throat> there are short-term uh, rentals, including hotels, motels, inns, bed and breakfasts, and the such, um, to close and therefore requiring visitors again to leave. There is a process there with where individuals can apply for an, um, an exception or exemption from my public health rule. They need to do that to me in writing. Um, they can also contact my office number at 641-3244, or they can email, and if they email the call center at gunnisoncounty.org, that will get directed to me. They need to provide details. I really look for those exemptions to be limited to um, hotel rooms that are being used for individuals that are traveling to help us here in the community, like federal and state partners that are coming to stay here, um, or a need for us to use those for quarantine or public health purposes. Um, but I'll accept any request and then consider that. Um, the order also um, requires that all restaurants uh, transition to takeout or delivery service only, no liquor sales in restaurants um, based on this order. It closes all bars and tap rooms and any other um, name you have for um, a place where you go to drink alcohol. It does not close liquor stores and it does not close dispensaries. Um, they are still required to maintain um, the social distancing requirements that are in the public health order. It goes further in limiting any um, public um, gathering or any event um, that in th there's definitions in the public health order of what's included in events 
Um, I included in events in this advanced order public transportation. So that includes all buses or any other form of public transportation. So that is now limited to less than 10 people. So if it was a bus being driven by one person, that would limit it to eight passengers that would be allowed on that public transportation. It also requires um, uh, all residential and commercial builders um, to see us. Uh, to stop operations unless they seek an exemption from me. Um, I did develop a Google form, and that is also located on our website, uh, thegunnisoncounty.org slash COVID-19, where individuals can link and complete the information in there to apply for an exception if um, they are able to maintain all of the requirements in the public health order. I think those are all the updates. Okay. Thank you very much. And I, and I continue to want, I want to continue to get, um, you know, a basic sort of update of where we're, where we're at, because this has been a situation that's been moving so fast. My next question is for you, Dr. Hogan. Um, I, you know, I was wondering if you could just kind of describe the current strain or weight that is being put on the healthcare system, whether or not it's beginning to concern you, what are your risk factors in that? When will it concern you? That's an excellent question. So um, I think, first of all, the uh, health system currently in our valley is operating extremely uh, effectively, um, and that's entirely due to the extremely proactive efforts of our Crested Butte and Gunnison Valley EMS uh, teams who were able to get out in the community early and do some early testing and recognize that this was very prevalent within our community early on. Um, and then that was further um, backed by the efforts of our um, public health officials here who have been uh, very proactive in promoting our uh, isolation and containment efforts. So right now, I think we're fortunate that our uh, healthcare system has not yet had a surge. You know, we're all kind of waiting for when that might potentially occur as we recognize that there is, you know, ongoing community transmission. Um, you know, just I think it'd be helpful to provide some basic background on kind of what we're dealing with. There's, you know... Um, the you know, virus itself uh, has is, is a coronavirus, as we're all aware of, but um, is, to, is generating you know, flu-like symptoms, which is challenging as we're coming at the tail end of flu season because um, we are still seeing some flu in the community. And a lot of these symptoms, um, for a majority of individuals, are going to have kind of more mild or even asymptomatic symptoms with this. And so um, cough, uh, not as much congestion, uh, that we see with some other kind of viruses, but uh, certainly cough, some intermittent fevers. Um, and then people, you know, tend to have some mild shortness of breath with this because it can produce more of kind of lower respiratory infection with kind of a viral pneumonia um, type picture. People are saying uh, from people that I've interacted with who are known positives that they're having a lot of body aches with this. But again, that's challenging because, again, we're in some at the tail end of flu season. Um, but we have to be proactive if we're recognizing that we're having these symptoms. Um, and our biggest message that we're trying to help get out, and I think people are listening to this, uh, is that if you feel like you're having any of these symptoms, the best thing is to you know, help isolate yourself from others in the community and to help kind of minimize the spread. Um, the, in regards to the health system and you know, the reason we're being so proactive and for some people uh, thinking that we're being aggressive with these measures is that you know, with our community, we've we've identified, recognized that there's approximately 2,300 people in the valley um, 
due to either their uh, age or their comorbidities, being heart disease, lung disease, other factors that can affect their immune system um, that are at risk for having more severe complications with this. We've we've looked at large stu- large scale studies in China and elsewhere um, that have showed that you know eighty percent of people are going to be um, you know again have those more mild or asymptomatic uh, symptoms and be very okay with this virus and ultimately recover totally well. We are recognizing that about ten percent of people are ultimately going to require some form of hospitalization, whether that's brief, you know, a couple of days, but a more you know potentially a more prolonged course. And of that 10% that might need to go to the hospital, about 20 or 30% of people are going to need critical care. And critical care um, means more intensive, you know, ICU-level care. Uh, And some of these people are going to need to be on uh, ventilators to help them kind of breathe and recover for this as it produces a more significant viral pneumonia for individuals. So if we look at that at-risk population of about 2,300, if 10% of those people all needed to come to the hospital at once, that's 230 people. And if 20 to 30% of those people needed critical care, that's 69 people that would potentially need an ICU. Gunnison Valley Health is an excellent facility, but does not have ICU capabilities. Um, And a majority of time, we're able to uh, take someone who needs critical care or an ICU, stabilize them, and hopefully get them out to a higher level of care whether that's on the Western Slope or Front Range uh, hospitals. Um, and we have to recognize that, you know, as this becomes, this is not just a Gunnison issue, it's a Colorado issue, it's a national issue. And so as our, our centers where we typically help get people to an ICU get full, um, the best thing we can do is try and be more proactive and help, again, try and isolate ourselves if we're having these symptoms to prevent rapid spread throughout the community. So again, I think our... Um, EMS teams, our public health teams, you know, our entire community has come together really well um, and effectively at this point to help promote what seemed like initially very aggressive isolation measures, but recognizing that the sooner that we're able to help kind of prevent the more rapid spread of this in the community, the better out we will be in the near future and hopefully further down the line um, from preventing what we call a surge on the healthcare system. Right now, the buzzword is trying to flatten the curve. And so, you know, if you, you know, have access to the internet, and you want to read more about this, um, there are a lot of infectious disease epidemiologists and and specialists in their field who are saying this is going to be the only way that we're going to try and ultimately save lives with this process. So... Dr. Just to interrupt, this is Chris Rourke from the Gunnison Times. And... um, I think some people are getting confused where they say the flu is so much more, you know, dangerous. Um, and they're not realizing that these cases are on top of what we're already dealing. Uh, I think you've, you've spoken to that. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you could better define what a vulnerable population is. I know it's the elderly. I know it's those who are chronically ill. But I've talked to people who, say, have rheumatoid arthritis and they're on an immunosuppressant and they're immunocompromised. They look like the rest of us. They're at the grocery store. They wave to you. They're our neighbors and they look perfectly healthy, but they are immunocompromised. And those are the people we're protecting. And I don't think people always really identify with that and, and realize those are the people. Can you expand upon what is a vulnerable person in, in this population? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I think that's an excellent point. I think right now people are focusing a lot on the on the age aspect of this. And so just to 
back that up and where some of those um, initial kind of messages and directives are coming from, you know, everyone's trying to pinpoint a number of, um, I guess, mortality or fatalities that might come out of this um, and trying to compare it to flu. You know, again, from some of the infectious disease experts that I've been on teleconferences with, um, what we're seeing is that this has the potential to be 10 to 15 times worse than a bad flu season. Um, And what we're seeing is that, you know, in the 60 to 69 range, you know, again, we're just basing off some rough data because of uh, the uh, limited time that we've had a chance to study this virus being a couple months. Um, But, you know, 60 to 69 having an increased mortality rate of, you know, 3.6%. Can I interrupt on that? Yeah. Okay. So I'm in my 50s. I have lots of friends in in their 60s. They are like, why 60? I mean, come on, I feel fine. I'm athletic. I'm in shape. I'm healthy. So yeah, I'd I'd like to hear more about why 60. I I know Joni's spoken to it at at several meetings, but I think the public really needs to understand that. What happens to the body at 60? And it's not a switch. Correct. You know, on your birthday, but maybe you could expand upon that. And I think, you know, people are trying to focus too much on the number, right? Um, Whether that's, again, the number of potential, um, you know, bad outcomes that could happen as we get older. But, you know, the difference between 59 versus 60 versus 61, it's all on a spectrum. Um, And I think it just reflects that our immune system is not as strong as it is in our 60s, 70s, 80s, as it might be in our 20s or 30s if we're otherwise healthy. Um, so again, those, you know, those rough numbers that we're going off of from these large studies being, you know, approximately 3.6% having, you know, more adverse outcomes, 60 to 69, 70 to 79 being more in the 8% range, and then above 80 being 50, 15% um, mortality potentially with this uh, virus, which is, is very significant. Um, but you touched on something important that it's also not just age, which... Um, but certainly, you know, if you're taking any kind of medication that could affect your immune system, um, if you have other, you know, heart problems, lung problems, um, other kind of what we call comorbidities that uh, have the potential to affect your immune system or your ability to fight this infection. At the same time, I think it's important to recognize that there are, you know, and it's, it's a balance of, you know, trying to reassure people, but also uh, inform them that this is a very serious you know, threat potentially. But we're seeing, you know, healthy 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, you know, uh, that are having significant complications with this. So, you know, there are people that are perfectly healthy that are still having significant uh, complications from this. And so I think we're trying to promote, you know, some altruism or, you know, people kind of doing good for other people. But you have to recognize that this has the potential to be a very significant virus for some individuals, even if you're completely healthy. Um, does that help answer your question? It, it does. And and really, I think hitting that point that um, uh, we're not doing it for ourselves, but for our neighbors, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm perfectly healthy. I was joking with Joni. I took been taking my temperature. Yeah, I'm pretty good. But um, I w- would hate to pass it on to somebody else. Right. And and so I think as as a community, that's, you know, we keep talking about having a community response. Exactly. That's what a community response is. Um, and I just wanted to get to some of our questions here. This is Chris with KBUT. Um, one of the questions that's come up an, uh, again and again, and I'm hoping uh, perhaps Jody Leonard can uh, shed some light on this. Um, if you get the coronavirus, can you get it again? Or are you more vulnerable to getting it again? What goes on with that? Oh, great question, question Chris. I want to first remind everybody, coronavirus 
is a, it's a group of viruses. It's not just one virus, which is why we call this outbreak COVID-19. Um, there's easily seven or eight different strains of coronavirus, and most of them are really simple, common cold-like infections. And so a lot of kids actually spread coronavirus just like the Petri dish we imagine in a public school. And this is one of the reasons that we really needed to look at closing the schools. So these kids get exposed to these viruses, and they actually, so the body's designed to build antibodies, right? We get exposed to something, and your blood is smart enough to know what that is that you were exposed to. Now, when it comes to the immune response in the body, there is a thing called, if you don't need it, sometimes you lose it, right? We don't always have eternal memory. So as we get older, those antibodies might change or disappear or we defer to other antibodies that we need for maybe the next flu strain that comes out. So here we are with this new coronavirus strain that the human body has never seen. And so nobody has antibodies to this particular strain. Now, when I go back to the kids and the Petri dish theory, this is actually one of the potential reasons why kids are not really affected by this particular COVID-19 strain is that they, they currently have a lot of different coronavirus-type antibodies in their blood. Um, that's not proven. Uh, I'm going to put that out there, but it's one of the theories. Um, and so as we get older, we get exposed to different things, and we develop new antibodies. And now, hopefully, if you've had the, the COVID-19 strain, you will be able to fight it off if you were exposed again. Now, with that being said, of course the immunocompromised who don't have very well-functioning immune systems are going to struggle with uh, maintaining those antibodies. Anybody who's received maybe a blood transfusion, sometimes that can affect the antibodies that you keep in your bloodstream. But for the most part, I think um, I can't really guess to venture a number, but um, a lot of people will be able to fight off a, a second round. Reinfection uh, is going to be unknown for quite a while because it's still new to the human population, and we'll just have to see how that plays out. Um, and so I'm just going to read an answer, or read a question from a listener here, um, just to make sure we, this is, I think there's some interesting um, parameters around this. But uh, So I have had a cold for over three weeks that just won't let go. I'm a healthy 69-year-old woman and haven't had a cold in years this one feels different. Low energy, head fog, and sometimes a slightly elevated body temp. Is it possible to have this virus but manifesting it in a slighter degree? It seems to be a lot of persistent colds going around the area lately that people say are lingering. And actually, the part of that that I'd like to really zoom in is um, colds that may have hit uh, somebody earlier in the winter um, and maybe be tailing off on a cold but coming in you know, and, and experiencing some symptoms from the yeah the last of that. Tell us what to do in that circumstance because that can be quite confusing. Yeah, absolutely, and that's kind of what the situation we're in right now, and kind of what we were uh, talking about a little bit earlier is that we're still coming off of uh, a reasonably strong influenza season, um, as well as you know kind of the tail end of cough, cold, kind of viral upper respiratory infection. Um, conversations with several individuals. Um, dozens of individuals that have that exact same question. You know, they had some flu-like symptoms, you know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, um, that initially got better, and now they feel like they're getting worse in a certain, uh, um, I guess, regard. And uh, Or they, you know, again, had 
you know, recent kind of bacterial pneumonia, maybe run some antibiotics, and then now they feel like they're having some worsening symptoms. Um, the the biggest message that we're trying to promote here again is that it, it's incredibly hard to tell. Um, you know, and you know those symptoms that that individual is describing. You know, for two or three weeks of a persistent cough or cold. Um, it, it it certainly could be this novel virus. You know, we we have to recognize that it's you know been potentially circulating our community for several weeks now. Um, and again, through some early efforts, I think we're able to get an early jump on recognizing that we had an early circulation within our community compared to Montrose or compared to Grand Junction, where they're not seeing as many cases. We have to recognize that we're in national and international travel destination, which likely just set us up to have early community transmission. Um, but the the take home from this is that, you know, it's very hard to tell right now whether those symptoms that we're describing is, is this new coronavirus versus a lingering cold. Some viruses that we see, you know, we expect, you know, for the flu, for instance, we expect people to kind of get better in about five days on average. Um, some people get better. And those these are all averages. So some people get better in three days. Some people get better in seven days. Same thing with kind of a cough or cold or some other virus aside from this novel coronavirus. Majority of people get better in about five to seven days, but that's an average. So some people's cough drags on for two weeks, three weeks. We see other you know, specific viruses that do typically cause coughs that can go on for three weeks to a month. Um, can I just jump in there? So, yeah. And a lot of other questions that we've gotten about are uh, how long are you considered contagious? Yeah. So if you have that lingering cough and that's the only symptom, is are you still contagious? And that's that's an excellent question. We're still learning so much about this virus. You know, they're um, they're looking at studies, and and the there are some sites that are now looking at recovery, um, which we have not quite entered that phase yet of the patients in our population. But so someone has a positive COVID test, um, and you track their symptoms over an, uh, you know several weeks, and then other sites are able to now kind of do further testing or swabs to try and see if they're still coming up positive for this virus or actually shedding it. Um, and again, I feel like I'm saying it over and over again, but we just don't have good data on that right now. And um, I think that's going to vary until we can kind of get an exact number. There are some studies that are showing that people are shedding this virus up to 28 days later after yeah. having onset of symptoms. And so that's a very long time. Um, to have evidence that you still are shedding this virus. And so well, and I also think it's important to discuss things that, you know, what, what do we know and what don't we know? And one of the things that has actually come up uh, recently in this past week is that we're learning that the virus can survive on surfaces for a lot longer. I'm wondering, you know, if we've gotten the, the message about cleaning hands and so on and so forth, and I'm wondering if that news brought cleaning your everyday surfaces that you're touching, you know, to the top of the list of, of ways to prevent spread. Um, is that the case? Yeah, Chris, this is Jody. So as infection control at the hospital, I can uh, speak to this pretty well. Um, the data that we have right now shows that on hard surfaces like stainless steel, hard plastic, things like that, the virus is um, studied to survive for 48 to 72 hours. So that's quite a long time when you're looking at grabbing a shopping cart at the grocery store, yeah. um, <clears throat> which is why we do encourage the use of, you know, using wipes and washing your hands before and after the grocery store and washing your food and things like that. Um, as far as the longevity on uh, textiles and soft um, surfaces, clothes, things like that, that's not nearly as well studied um, in the air 
that also is not as well studied. We know how quickly we can turn over um, air exchanges in a room per se, but not every house obviously is going to have a, a, a heating system where we know what the air pressure is and things like that that are going to determine airflow. So that's why um, initially the, the recommendations were the N95 mask, the specialty mask that has to be fitted to your face. Um, they are finding that less and less survival rates in the air um, on, in places that have been studied, which was what led to the, the use of the simple masks um, in simple conversations, you know, doing procedures where you're going to aerosolize the virus, swabbing the, the nose or the mouth or uh, in the hospital setting that give nebulized treatments for patients with asthma. That's producing um, an aerosolized process out of the body that would warrant better protection than just a simple mask. So that's about, you know, anything will kill a virus. Um, your simple Lysol wipe that you have here on the counter is going to be virucidal. I appreciate um, you telling the community that we have that out on the counter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so you're listening to KBUT Community Radio for the Gunnison Valley. My name is Christopher Biddle, um, KBUT News uh, special uh, question and answer session with health officials from the Gunnison Valley. You just heard from Joni Leonard, Jody Leonard. We also have uh, Jason Hogan, a physician with Gunnison Valley Health here, and Joni Reynolds with Health and Human Services, and Chris Rourke, who is um, the Gunnison Country Times editor, longtime reporter here in the community. And actually, I would like to direct a question to you, Chris, because this is something that we talked about. Um, we 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 had discussed. Man, it would be really great to get some more. Um, government officials or somebody who might have an idea of relief for the community financially um, following the COVID-19 crisis um, that has become a lot more of the conversation in the time that we scheduled uh, this session. Um, and, you know, perhaps that means we can do it again. But uh, what are some areas that businesses might be able to look for relief? I believe you were telling me about some things that you knew about. You know, I haven't uh, done extensive research on this, but what I've seen is there are a lot of uh, programs coming up. Uh, Depart uh, Colorado Department of Labor um, came out with something today. They're going to offer some kind of relief and support. Region 10 has some programs going on. I know the Small Business Administration is going to offer something. Uh, there's legislation in Congress right now that they're trying to get through that would offer some relief to business owners. Do I know the details? No. But I think I want to put that out there because, you know, we got a question about any suggestions or ideas on how people are supposed to pay for their bills and rent, et cetera. Um, I think that will be coming in, in the days ahead. And I know everyone worries, if I can't go to work, how do I pay my bills? You got to remember, we are, this is a national crisis. Uh, it's been declared as such. It's a county crisis, state, state level uh, emergency. So, Oh, I hesitate in saying this, but in, in in some ways, I just want to say trust the universe that it's going to work out, and that's that's very glib to say. I, I now I'm I'm backtracking those words, but I'm just saying that you know we're all in this boat together, and it's not just a Gunnison Valley thing. It's not a state of Colorado thing. It's a national situation and a worldwide situation. And um, so I think as we remain positive and keep looking for those opportunities, they will come about. Um, that's the best I know at this point. Sure. And I actually just wanted to relate as well um, that I spoke with 
um, Ashley Upchurch, who is with the Crested Butte, Mount Crested Butte Chamber of Commerce, one thing that she told me that uh, community members can buy gift cards uh, to help their businesses during this time because they're not going to be open, but they, they uh, you know, this is the time that they'd be making uh, their, their vast majority of their money for the year. Um, and yeah, the, the, the chamber is out asking for gift cards. Yeah. Yeah, I, I ordered lunch in today. You know, uh, these these restaurants are staying open. I think I'm going to order in dinner tonight. And, you know, it's it's just a matter of I need food. So why shouldn't I order from a restaurant? And that is a way that people can help is by, you know, taking advantage of these um, situations where you can order food out. And some of my favorite restaurants are making that available. And it's I think it's a great option. And it, it does help, you know, spread the wealth. So. Um, I just wanted to get one question here. Maybe we can get this quickly done and out of the way. Do you need a doctor's note to get to the drive up virus test, um, in Crested Butte or Gunnison? That's an excellent question. So you do not need a doctor's note. Um, we have, uh, two sites, as you just mentioned, um, one currently in Gunnison that's currently at the, uh, public health, uh, office, uh, operated out of, both are going to be operated out of parking lots. And the other one is at the Crested Butte Community School parking lot. Um, so the Gunnison side is open uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, currently from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And the uh, Crested Butte site being open Tuesday and Thursday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Um, right now we've had a huge, uh, huge um, amount of support from our uh, local uh, kind of officials uh, in terms of supporting these efforts. Um, we're having tremendous support from our local sheriffs and police um, departments to help with logistics, as well as from um, nurses and physicians and nurse practitioners, PAs uh, within the community as well. And so um, I think it's uh, a testament to our community right now that we are having people that are coming out, um, putting their time forth and offering this uh, free service for our community members to um, come through uh, and help screen individuals. And that's the thing that we're emphasizing right now is that it's truly a screening site. Um, you know, a lot of places initially were opening um, testing sites where they were trying to actively swab as many people as possible due to a, a national shortage on the ability to um, obtain these swabs and, and especially get a timely turnaround on them. What we're trying to focus on right now is just do more of a screening site, kind of help people um, kind of uh, provide their symptoms that they're having, um, kind of discuss those symptoms, kind of uh, look for risk factors that they might have um, to help put them on our radar um, and be more aware of kind of uh, what's going on in our community. And then also just provide some resources um, and hopefully some reassurance to members as they have kind of a face-to-face -face evaluation with our, um, our staff out there. And this might be a question for Joni, but my understanding is the National Guard is not coming here as of right now. The National Guard is not coming to Gunnison County. <clears throat> we, um, the governor did commit to using the National Guard for doing testing in Denver, and he has committed to doing testing in other communities, and the National Guard is doing that in Telluride, but that's not happening here in Gunnison County. Instead, um, we opted to get additional test kits sent so that we could continue to use the excellent um, drive-in drive screening process that's currently happening in our community. Um, we, we really did not want to transition to a process that would require individuals to see their provider to get a prescription or an order for testing. We think that's counterproductive to actually supporting and insulating our health care uh, providers. They're already busy. 
they're already doing a lot of work um, to respond to their patients and having uh, the tests request go through those providers' offices, it would just help to overwhelm our providers. And um, we have put in a request to the state um, emergency operations that we could potentially need some assistance for our hospital in the form of like a mash unit type setup where it could be a tent. It's actually not done through the National Guard, but it is through the military and um, that request is in. It hasn't been approved yet, but it's one of the things that we think could help if we do need surge capacity at the hospital and um, for a minimum to be able to defer some of our routine emergency services. So for a car accident or someone falls and breaks a, has a fracture, that we have an alternate site that we can actually service those individuals. And, and really the actions you've taken you know, we've seen uh, drive-up centers in, in Denver and them have issues. It seems like it's going fairly smoothly here. And you are making decisions on, I would say, the front edge of things. Um, what are you seeing statewide and how are we comparing? Yeah, it's really incredible. Our um, drive-in screening process has been not only exceedingly efficient and um, actually seeing 50 and 60 individuals at each of the clinics, but they're also using an algorithm that's standardizing the process that's being used to evaluate the patients. Um, Multiple providers in the community randomly determining who should go for testing or who should not go for testing. And the difference is that what we're seeing is 75 to actually um, or greater percentage of our tests are coming back positive. And the reason for that is because it's a really biased sample. They're already being really well screened to determine if they're more likely to be positive for the coronavirus versus what we're seeing statewide, which is about 12% of the tests are positive. And so what that really says is that they're testing a lot of folks that likely don't have symptoms or likely are not the best candidates to be tested for coronavirus. But if you had all the unlimited resources in the world as a public health professional, I'd love to do prevalence studies and find out just how many people in the community do test positive for it. But the reality is we've had a finite number of test kits available to us in the community. And so using the efficiency and the standardized process that's been used at that drive-in screening center has really maximized that limited resource that we have. And I just want to put you on the spot there. Is, is, do you think, are you able at all to uh, give a, a best estimate of the prevalence right now based on, you know, what you were saying about the rate of um, people, you know, tests coming back positive? Is that a possibility? Yeah, the best models out there are pretty varied. And so some say a factor of 10, some say a factor of 50, and some say even greater than that, meaning that we have 10 positive tests. That could represent 100 or 500 cases in our community currently. And some of the data indicates that um, it's likely the numbers that you have in your community will double every three days. And so we could see this exponential increase um, happen over the coming week. It's just hard for us to know which of those models to best um, determine in our community and really, frankly, what of the public health measures that we've implemented through the public health orders are going to have an impact on that surge or that rise in the number of cases. Hopefully, it reduces that spread. And so hopefully, we don't see those exponential increases in the numbers, but we don't know that. I wish I had that crystal ball sure. many times. Yeah, this thank is Jason Hogan. Yeah, Jason Hogan here again. Uh, Thank you, Joni. I just want to kind of piggyback off of that uh, discussion point that, you know, as we recognize that these numbers are potentially doubling very quickly, um, what we've been talking about over the past week is just our ability to have a huge impact. 
the sooner we put some of these protective uh, measures in place. And so um, as we recognize that these numbers are doubling very quickly, you know, days matter. And so I think a lot of people in the community um, feel like, you know, things are rapidly escalating and that, you know, one day it's this and the next day it's that. Um, But we have um, data from a lot of, you know, previous epidemics um, as well as kind of uh, the evolving scenarios in certainly in China, but also uh, Italy, Spain, France, um, where you where you are able to see that if you enact um, you know further containment efforts and further isolation efforts a day earlier, um, you have a potential to reduce the number of cases in your community by forty percent. That's a huge number when you start talking about you know hundreds or thousands of cases potentially. Um, you know, I think fortunately, again through some early efforts and very proactive efforts, we were having what is a more proactive response um, as opposed to a reactive response, which, which is what you're seeing in other um, areas of the country as well as other um, other countries themselves. So if people were aware of, you saw that Italy um, took uh, their initial isolation containment efforts uh, towards the northern part of their country, and then a day later they put lockdown measures on their entire country because they recognized that they were so far um, behind the ball and trying to control this virus. And so, um, again, I think, you know, fortunately we're having, um, some early proactive effects. Time will tell in terms of, you know, how effective those are ultimately, um, going to be, but I think we're certainly, uh, having less of a reactive response compared to other places. And I just want to remind listeners that you're listening to KBUT. This is uh, a special question and answer session with uh, health officials here in the Gunnison Valley regarding the spread of the COVID-19 disease and uh, its impact here on our community. Uh, I want to remind folks that they can call in questions 720-251-4658. I would ask that because we have a panel of medical professionals here with us today that we try to stick to questions um, that pertain to uh, that. And, um, you know, we can try to sort of get into some other questions that might be um, pertinent. But I did want to ask this one question here. Are there places where positive presumptive people can isolate themselves outside of their own homes so they can protect their family? So I, I think that that's a great example. You know, somebody that might be living with somebody with uh, an illness that comes down with COVID-19 what to do then? What do you recommend? Where do you send folks? Do you try to send them to hotels? Do you send them to friends' homes? Things like that. We've had that um, question posed to us, and the public health nurses that have been working on this have worked with individuals that have had that situation to try to find a plan that will work for them. Hotel rooms are an option. Obviously, it li- it's limited as far as um, the services that are available, particularly now um, there's not food service and there's other um, necessary services that they may not be able to get in the hotel. But we're trying to encourage individuals to be able to identify options within their own circle. And we don't have, we haven't rented a hotel or we haven't rented space. Um, we don't have resources that are dedicated. I, like Chris, believe that there are things that will happen in the universe that will help affect this in a positive way. They're just not here yet. And so we're looking um, for options. We don't. We, we have not yet engaged in uh, pro- properties to be able to house individuals. And again, the, individ- the public health nurses have worked with individuals so far to be successful in finding um, options for them within their circle of the community. 
Um, and here's a listener. Um, he's listing some specific symptoms here that I was wondering if we could talk about. Uh, age 62 with high blood pressure, uh, had symptoms and was advised to self-isolate after five days. Her symptoms disappeared completely. What is the minimum number of days that she should self-quarantine? That's a good question. So um, what the current recommendations are is uh, 10 days from symptom onset. And so, um, you know, it's, it's reassuring that, uh, you know, this individual sounds like they uh, are recovering well, and I'm happy to hear that. Um, and it's, it's somewhat of a moving target. And, you know, again, numbers, we're, we're putting, putting specific numbers out there trying to cover averages for people. And so the important thing is that, you know, that individual is feeling better. Um, and so I think it's reasonable, you know, 10 days from their onset of their symptoms um, to continue to self-isolate. You know, that being said, if, if you are feeling better, but you're at the kind of that 10 or 11 or 12-day mark, um, you know, again, it's kind of an imperfect science at this point, but I think, uh, you know, if you're, if you're no longer spiking fevers um, and if you're truly feeling back to your normal self, you know, if you, if you have the means and capabilities, um, trying to, you know, continue to isolate yourself for a couple of days beyond that um, is going to help uh, yourself in terms of recovery as well as um, help the other members in the community. Sorry, just to add on to that, this is Jody. One of the uh, CDC recommendations is that if you make it to ten, day 10 and you're still experiencing fevers, you really need to stay isolated. And um, beyond that, they're looking at saying uh, 72 hours from your last fever um, without the use of medications to reduce your fever. So your Tylenol, your ibuprofen. Um, you really want to make sure that those fevers are gone without AIDS. Uh, and 72 hours beyond that. So if you're still sick at day 14, which is totally a possibility, um, and you're having fevers, you may be wanting to self-isolate for up to 20 days. Um, it's really going to be case-dependent and, and symptomatic treatment. Okay, I have a question, and this relates to animals. First of all, um, looks like Paws and Gunnison Underdog Rescue are working on a plan to assist with pet food for uh, owners who can't afford to buy it um, and potential fostering. So that leads to the question, I have a cat and I have a horse. Um, can you talk about the coronavirus and how, I don't know, does it pass to animals? Can you get it back from animals if somebody with coronavirus pets a dog and then somebody else pets that dog? I mean, do we know anything about that right now? <laughs> this is this is that rabbit hole. Yes. <laughs> um because you know I talked about uh surface longevity of the virus on hard surfaces versus right. soft surfaces. And clearly most of our animals are soft surfaces. That's why we love them and snuggle them. Um but the idea that the coronavirus is uh on your hands or you cough on your dog or it it can live on their fur is a reality. Um there has been no documentation of transmission in this format. Uh, does that mean it can't happen? I, I don't think anybody would venture to yeah. say yes or no to answer that. Is it, what's the word? Zoonogenic? Zoonotic. Zoonotic. Yes, Thank so close. <laughs> <laughs> now, with that being said, um, if I'm dog sitting for somebody, I'm going to probably grab one of those Lysol wipes and wipe the dog down before I send them home with you know, the grandparents of the family and protect them because they're going to want to snuggle. Wow. Is it 
a consideration for your, you know, your most severe at-risk populations? Yes. Um, if you're running a, you know, a, a dog agency where we've limited, let's see, in-house um, daycares, but in-house dog cares, maybe you've got some leeway there. I don't know, Joni, you might have to address that. <laughs> the order <laughs> the rabbit hole the public health order is hole. silent on that <laughs> uh we've got a couple questions here's uh actually about ibuprofen i've heard ibuprofen um should be avoided because it can cause adverse reactions please clarify yeah, this is jason hogan again and uh it's it's an evolving discussion point uh for a lot of providers at this point um we're seeing some, so we know that uh, ibuprofen uh, anti-inflammatories in that same category as ibuprofen um, are able to do what they do because they you know, have a partial effect on your immune system. Um, and so there's some early data coming out of France in terms of um, whether you know this could have a potential uh, negative effect on suppressing your immune system slightly as you try and um, if you know, fight this infection. Again, this is extremely early. These are early conversations, um, but have been uh, reading more about this in the, even in the past couple of days. Um, and so I, I think a, an early recommendation would be that um, if you know, you're spiking fevers, try and use Tylenol as a first um, effort to control your fever. If you're still having persistent fevers, you know, uh, I think as a community, uh, in general, as a population, we have a huge focus on fevers, right? Um, we have to recognize that fevers are our body's natural response to fighting an infection. And so um, we we control we try to control fevers because it helps us feel better. Um, when you have a fever of 102 or 103, you feel terrible. Um, you don't feel like eating. You don't feel like drinking fluids. Um, it's, it's difficult to sleep, get the, get the rest that you need. And so... Um, we try and control our fevers to help us feel better. And so I, I don't want people to get, you know, too focused on this and the fact of taking any ibuprofen or, or measures to help control their temperature. But I think, again, everything in moderation, we're trying to balance, um, you know, efforts to help us heal and recover with this. And so I think, you know, a simple point would be to, you know, try and start with some Tylenol if you feel like you're not getting uh, improvement or relief in your fevers or body aches, which are significant for people in this, then it'd be fine to add some ibuprofen to it. But um, I think it's something that we're going to, you know, keep paying attention to. But um, I don't want people to look at, you know, ibuprofen in the same category as some other uh, medications that we use to truly suppress our immune system. It's no way in that same category. And there are other things that you can do, like, you know, cold compresses or lukewarm compresses, maybe that's because you don't want it to doesn't it react to extra cold compress that you can spike it or either way, you know, so, um, a lot of these external cooling measures or warming measures, you know, uh, should not affect your core temperature too, too much. And so, you know, if you're, again, I think, you know, trying to think about some of those other remedies, you know, if you have a sore throat, some tea and honey has been shown to do just as good, if not better than a lot of the over the counter medicines that we use. So there's, you know, there's some, some remedies there that, um, we can use that, uh, I think should be perfectly fine in the scenario. I think at my house, the, the question is always let it run or bring it down, you know, because there is that, that therapeutic effect of, of being able to burn something off. But I guess when you, you're talking about 102, that, that gets into discomfort. Correct. So. 
uh, is there anything that people can do to slow the onset of the virus if they have been near someone who's been infected? If they suddenly find out that their best friend that they just went on a, a road trip with. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, can can they slow the onset of the virus and um, you know make perhaps even uh, lessen its impact? It's an excellent question. Uh, the important take home with you know thinking about this you know is to do whatever you can do to try and stay healthy in that moment and so um you know there aren't you know if there was if there was a medication that would just you know you know help you completely fight this off um we'd be discussing that right now uh sure but there isn't but and so i think we have to focus on you know making sure you're getting appropriate sleep you know allowing your body to rest staying hydrated um you know eating you know, balanced, uh, diet, uh, you know, there are, um, not great data for, you know, kind of, you know, significant increased, uh, vitamin supplementation, but I don't think it hurts to take some vitamin C or airborne. Um, but you know, those are the main things, you know, you know, making sure you're getting appropriate sleep, making sure you're taking care of yourself. Um, and, you know, trying to reduce your alcohol intake if you're drinking a significant amount of alcohol, um, those are kind of just some basic recommendations, but, um, yeah. Sure. Um, I wanted to just ask, and this might be another question that's just impossible to answer. I'm feeling like there's lots of those, but that's quite all right. I, um, uh, I heard president, vice president Pence today sort of directing the public to hunker down for the next two weeks. And I was surprised to hear this, to hear that two weeks, because I don't very often hear a determinate end to this. Um, and oftentimes, you know, when the schools canceled, uh, classes, they said, you know, very tentatively, this is when we're coming back. You don't hear a lot of it. We don't really know a whole lot about how long, uh, these circumstances will last. Can you give us any picture of how, how that might unfold? Yeah. So I, I want us to all be as optimistic as we can in this, but the reality is I think we're going to be, um, dealing with this for months to come. Um, the, and the reason for that is I think if, if we go back to what we were talking about initially with trying to flatten the curve, um, and try and, uh, do it as effective as a job as we can to prevent this surge on our local hospital or healthcare system, as well as on our healthcare system regionally or nationally, um, if we're isolating ourselves and, you know, if doing what we can do to help contain this virus as best we can, then we have to recognize that, you know, if this if, if we don't flatten the curve and if, if everybody gets this virus at once, then we're going to have this massive surge or spike in the number of cases, and that's going to overwhelm our healthcare system. If we do what we're trying to do effectively in terms of isolation containment and we flatten that curve out, that means that we're stretching this out over weeks to months. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, kind of is warmer weather going to affect this um, and help, you know, kind of make this just go away as, as spring or summer goes away. And we just don't, I don't, you know, all the experts that I've been reaching out to say no. Um, if we look at other coronaviruses, um, particularly, you know, SARS, uh, which did have an initial drop um, over the summer months, but that was due to the timing of when it came about and early isolation and containment efforts. And if we look at other, you know, significant coronaviruses like MERS, um, MERS is transmitted, you know, in between um, Q 
camels as a host in the, in the desert. And so it's 110 degrees in the desert and there's still effective viral transmission with that. And so I can't, I don't think we can necessarily hope uh, that it's going to be just disappear because of spring or summer. Again, I'd love to be as optimistic as possible with sure. that, but we have to you know, have straight talk right now. We have to be you know, upfront with people um, about kind of what our overall expectations are with this. And I think, you know, we can anticipate this lasting months. Um, so we've got about five minutes left in the uh, six o'clock hour. At, we're coming up on 7 p.m. We've answered a lot of our questions that we've gotten. Uh, some of our questions I may be saving to answer later on because they're not specific to uh, health issues, but sort of, uh, you know, an economic fallout or a social fallout around um, this virus. And that's something that KBT will continue to cover. I'm wondering in these, uh, if you, you're starting, you know, possibly to wrap up here, if there are things that we really want to talk about, uh, if there's anything that, you, you know, you three would like to bring up, or I said, should say you four, uh, if you, <laughs> anything to bring up before we close it, what are, uh, you know, closing statements, things that we may not have covered in this past hour that you'd really like the community to know? Thanks, Chris. One of the things I really wanted to talk about was just mental health during this time. We think that's a paramount issue in addition to what we're doing to protect the community's health. And while we understand the isolation and the social distancing has some downsides, we also worry about the impact on children and adults alike. But in particular, if we think back to some of the scary times in our country's history, if we think of 9-11 and just the traumatic impact that had on children, we do have an opportunity at this time to do something different for children and to really think about how to be creative and how to make the experience a positive one for kids. So rather than it being the two weeks that kids were terrified um, because their parents were watching TV and they didn't know what to do because they were stuck in the house, it could be the time when they played a board game had um, a walk as a family every day. Um, we're actually working with the Arts Center as lo- along with both of the municipal- different municipalities around trying to get more information out for families about creative things to do online and outside to just make this experience um, one that helps to protect the mental health and the well-being of our children and adults alike. Yeah, and I, I would just you know like to again echo what um, Joni's saying here. And there, I think a lot of people are reaching out trying to think about what they can do to help in this scenario. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of proactive efforts in this community. You know, I think people coming together, and so people are going to be able to you know still effectively help isolate themselves, but still have a positive impact. Um, you know, again, we're you know there are a lot of uh, restaurants, small business, you know, restaurants in particular that are still doing takeout, and so trying to support your local restaurant and reaching out to them, and um, you know, being able to get those online orders or takeout orders going to help support them through this. Um, C.J. Malcolm, who's one of our incident commanders with Joni, um, is promoting an idea which I think is awesome about trying to be a good neighbor. And so we all recognize who are out, who the people in our community who are potentially at risk. Um, and so uh, trying to reach out to those individuals, you know, call a text, even leaving a note on their door. Um, you know, some individuals don't have the rapid access to um, emails or kind of all the social media uh, and kind of online information that's changing rapidly. And so, um, again, trying to be proactive with those 
those neighbors um, and seeing what you can do to potentially help them, even if it's, you know, uh, going to city market and uh, dropping off, you know, some groceries for them on their doorstep, I think would be a huge help. So um, I think we can all, you know, play a huge role in this, play a part in this, and um, I'm excited to see how this community comes together. Yeah, this is Jody Leonard. I just wanted to emphasize that, you know, we're dealing with a situation that none of us in our lifetime or really even our parents' lifetime has had to experience. And so although, you know, Gunnison was noted for taking drastic measures in 1918 when we experienced the Spanish flu, um, and some would say we're taking drastic measures now because our surrounding communities maybe are not as proactive as we're being um, we are making decisions every single day that really have no precedent. There, there is no good rule book for this kind of thing. And so if you find yourself feeling critical or you find your families being critical about the decisions that are being made, I just really encourage you to stop and think about how hard it, it is to make the decisions around stopping businesses and changing our economic patterns for an entire community. So take a moment and just maybe think about what you would do if you had to sit in some of the seats that our county officials have to sit in and really reflect on what is the best and greater good for the whole community, not just you or your family, um, and, and understand that it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. And there will be mistakes made along the way. We're just going to do our best to try and protect the, the most amount of people that we can in the shortest time frame that we can. Thank you, Jody. Uh, you're listening to KBUT Community, KBUT Crested Butte, KGNI Gunnison. Heard at 90.3 in Crested Butte, 88.7 in Gunnison, and online at KB and online at kbut.org. Um, thank you so much for joining us in this special question and answer session. I think that we we're just a minute past 7 p.m. here. We've got a couple more questions to answer. If we can um, try to get some of those, and I believe Chris Rourke, you have a question. Well, it's a clarification. And I knew I'd get hammered for this, maybe. But um, we're such an animal-loving society here. So I did hear from Eric McPhail, who is our Gunnison County Extension agent. And uh, he sent me an email, and he knows I'm always on my phone, so I would get this. And uh, briefly, he says, according to the American Veterinary Medical Association, infectious disease experts and multiple international and domestic human and health organizations agree There is no evidence at this point to indicate that pets become ill with COVID-19 or that uh, they spread it to other animals, including people. So that's from Eric. That's wonderful. Okay. (laughs) I've been busy reading the CDC webpage, so I'm glad somebody else has the time to read all those other webpages. I I should also mention here that we, um, Kelly Dole, my colleague at KBUT, who's helping us field a lot of questions, by the way, that we're getting from Facebook and from folks calling in. Um, she is hosting a show tomorrow morning, and she, uh, I believe once a month, has a veterinarian on her show, and she's talking about pets in uh, the Gunnison Valley and COVID-19, so make sure to check that out. That's on KBUT tomorrow morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Um, so here's just another example. You know, I think it's kind of worthwhile to maybe go over some of these examples and, um, see if it brings up anything new or, you know, if we can learn a little bit more. Uh, but Charlie is from Crested Beauty. He's traveling to Utah in two weeks. He is healthy, no symptoms, low risk. Is he a potential risk to others when he travels? 
That's good. That's a good question. I'll let uh, Joni, I guess, talk about some of the public health uh, messaging here in a second. But just from a you know, medical standpoint, uh, and compared to other viruses, I think we're um, learning a lot that there's, um, I guess, early asymptomatic transmission of this virus. Uh, and so what, what they're doing is they're, you know, uh, taking people who had a no, known close contact with someone who was positive for COVID-19 uh, and then following those individuals and then uh, swabbing them early before they kind of acknowledge that they develop symptoms. And these people are actually having pretty high um, uh, amounts of the virus um, before they actually develop the fever, the cough, or other symptoms we might think of. And so um, that's you know kind of why some of the um, early public health messages, um, particularly from a state level, are being um, passed down for individuals, you know, traveling to, but even from uh, Gunnison County. And I'll let um, Joni touch on that a little bit more. First up, I have today's top headline. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Hogan. So we do think that there is um, community spread of the COVID-19 here in Gunnison County, and that's true in other counties and other mountain communities here in Colorado. We really think that community spread is happening throughout the state and likely throughout many communities in the nation, but the evidence isn't there because of the a larger size of those communities. But my uh, public health advice would be to not travel, um, to remain in the community and remain in your primary residence with your um, family and avoid the risk um, both for yourself and for others at a time when we're still um, seeing this outbreak as it unfolds both in our community, across the state, and across our nation. Um, and some more questions here. That's I, I, you may have sort of touched on that there. But are, are there any are there any efforts by Gunnison County uh, to let people know once they arrive here, perhaps, or driving through um, these public health orders, or you know, how are we keeping people from staying away from Gunnison Valley? That's actually sort of the, the phrasing on one of these questions here. We actually have worked with State Patrol and the. Um, State Department of Transportation to post signs, so the variable message signs coming on Highway 50, <clears throat> Poncha Springs, and Highway 50 um, east of Montrose, as well as Highway 114. Um, the signs are uh, letting folks know that Gunnison County is closed to tourism. Um, in addition, we're using our uh, public information officer to help broadcast the information, not only through our website, but through social media and through other outlets to try to get the word out. We're sharing that information. <clears throat> Obviously, the closure of lodging, um, the end of short-term um, lodging rentals will also have an impact in uh, spreading that word across uh, the community, as well as just individual um, restaurants and other places that are uh, sharing that information. Junie, is there any point at which you would insist on closing down the buses, the buses entirely? It's certainly a consideration I've had, and I appreciated Jody's comments earlier. This, the public health orders themselves have, have come with uh, sleepless nights for me personally, just as I try to decide what's the best for the community, really for the public health. And it's, um, it's nothing I've taken lightly. It's weighed on me heavily, and uh, I understand the buses as part of our infrastructure in our community and really have seen it as an essential service, but one that I've cons been concerned mightily about as far as just the close proximity of individuals and the potential to spread um, the disease in that. Um, that's why 
buses as an event in this latest public health orders and limit that uh, to less than 10 individuals, meaning nine, um, the driver plus eight passengers, because I think that gets us closer to the social distancing that's necessary to help prevent the spread. But it's still every day um, as I continue to read and review and look at um, our current situation and what's happening elsewhere, I consider what, if any, additional public health orders might be necessary, and buses could be an additional public health order in the future. I believe uh, Gunnison Valley RTA is meeting tomorrow, so we may see you know some changes in that that Absolutely. area. So, and and I've been completely um, as forthcoming as possible about what I'm thinking about. Um, I ju- I have not been able to make all of those decisions at any one moment. Obviously, this is the uh, third version of the public health orders for Gunnison County, but the factors have been different, and I have really appreciated different communities and different organizations in the community really considering the impact and what they can do as an entity to try to also mitigate the spread of the disease in the community, and that's been evident in a lot of places. Um, restaurants went to takeout service only before this public health order came out. Um, other businesses have taken extreme measures to try to make sure that they are doing their best um, to implement best practices, have social distancing. And so um, I think the RTA has worked really hard along with another a number of other entities to really be considerate of what can they do um, to really support our community and prevent the spread of the disease in the community. Um, there's a question here about Western students who are on spring break this week. Uh, are they going to be allowed back into the community? Could that rekindle or, you know, re-jump, uh, jumpstart, I guess, the uh, the virus again? It's a great question and one that um, it contributes to the sleep that I'm losing um, daily. Um, it, I, I think that one of the things we've we've certainly looked at is how best to contain as much as possible in the community. We do think that the residents in the dorms and having the residents in the dorms is one way to keep um, that community in an isolation, if you will, among and with each other. Um, At the same time, interrupting some of the other social intersects that could happen in the community by closing some of the points um, where would occur such as obviously reducing events to less than 10 individuals, but also closing bars and other gathering points in the community is where we think, I personally think that some of the potential risk for spread from one individual, be it a student or someone else in the community, could occur. And that's really what the public health orders are intended to do, is to try um, to the extent possible to mitigate some of that spread. Great. Thank you for answering that question. Um, we have worked through a, a lot of questions. We still have some questions remaining. Um, I am wondering if we can continue this at a different time uh, to continue doing this uh, this question and answer session um, because that is something that seems as though the, the community is interested in that. Um, I, I guess I just, again, you know, closing statements. Do we, do we have any um, things that we want to wrap up with? Chris Rourke. Yeah, I think the community's had a lot of questions, and to hear from you directly, it's greatly appreciated. I've, I've gotten some text messages and some messages on social media saying that people are getting their you know, answers that they've been looking for. And, of course, it's a, ten, a tense time. Um, people are uh, – fear always comes out of the unknown. 
Um, so by you being willing to come here and just answer those questions, field those questions, and freely talk about it, I think um, it provides a lot of community calm. So I just want to thank you all three. Chris, thanks for doing this. Um, but thanks for coming here and, and being able to talk so freely about it so people can have some reassurance and get the answers they need. Yeah, thank you both. It's been very appreciated to be able to have the opportunity to provide information and have a forum like this to be able to answer questions. Sure. Yeah, I do just reiterate thank you to all four of you, not only for coming in and doing this um, for KBUT. I know our listeners absolutely appreciate it, uh, but also just all the work that you all have done to keep our community safe uh, in this uh, this you know frightening times here in the Gunnison Valley. And uh, we, we appreciate it very much. This is KBUT Community Radio for the Gunnison Valley. Thank you so much for tuning in during this live question and answer session with local health officials about the COVID-19 virus here in the Gunnison Valley. Uh, we are going to be setting this on our website. We've recorded tonight and we're going to be putting it up our website and we will probably be getting back to our community about doing more of these live question and answer sessions because we've had quite a turnout this evening. So we do appreciate our listeners that are tuning in as well. It's 712. Make sure to stay tuned to KBUT. Uh, Bobby Digital with Bobby's World is coming up next.